welcome back to the More Money Podcast. Uh, this is Jessica Morehouse speaking, your host of the show, and this is uh, episode 323. So excited to have you back. And if you you haven't noticed, you probably did notice, I'm very, very excited about it. I wanted to honestly uh, announce it sooner, but quite honestly, so when I recorded like the intro and outro for last week's episode, um, I'd already sent it to my editor by the time I, you know, then decided, oh, I'm going to finally, you know, update my podcast artwork. But anyways, here we are week later. Um, so you may have seen there's brand new podcast artwork, which I'm so excited about because I got, you know, all my new professional photos. And uh, I personally, I love this one. This is probably my favorite cover art. I think this is probably my fourth uh, kind of iteration of cover art. Cause I've, I mean, I've had the show for almost seven years in June. It will be seven years, guys. How crazy is that? And uh, gosh, I should probably try to find some of them and then, you know, do a side by side. They, some of the early ones were rough. I will be honest. My skills have improved. Also, thank God for Canva. That really makes anyone a good graphic artist. But uh, yeah, super excited to have new cover art. So hopefully, um, you know, more people will be interested in listening to the show because honestly, I feel like compared to the the old stuff that I had, it just doesn't compare. Like this is just so much more me and, you know, you know, I think a little bit more um, clear on what the show is about. It's about money, guys. Um, so anyways, uh, speaking of the podcast, I've got an amazing guest on the show who has been the investment industry for a very long time. He 100% deserves the title of veteran because he's been in the investment industry for over 37 years. I've got Gil Baumgarten on the show. So a little bit about Gil. After beginning his career at EF Hutton in the early 80s, Gil became a top producer for UBS and Smith Barney, what is today Morgan Stanley. However, Gil found Wall Street routinely emphasized its own interests over clients. Surprise, surprise. We all kind of <laughs> we all kind of know that. Uh, so in 2010, Gil decided to leave the brokerage world to start Segment Wealth Management, a fiduciary firm where the interests of the client and the firm could align. And Gil is also a multi-year recipient of the top 1,200 financial advisors in America distinction by Barron's, in which he also ranked in the top 50 advisors in Texas for 2021. And in 2019, Gill was named one of the top 20 exchange traded funds, thought leaders in America by Barron's and the Wall Street Journal. And most excitedly, he also has a book, which I will be giving away a copy of. He is the author of Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System, which is a number one bestseller on Amazon. And that is kind of the topic that we're going to be exploring in this episode. Us retail investors, regular folks, how can we make sure that we're getting the best advice, the best, you know, uh, financial planning services, best, uh, you know, wealth management, if that's uh, something that we're seeking? How can we make sure that we aren't basically screwed? Because sometimes it seems like the the only people that are actually getting, you know, good advice or taken care of are the, you know, people with money. And that's not fair. And, uh, you know, what can we do about it? And so that is what we're going to be exploring in this episode. So I know you're going to love it. But before I get to that interview with Gil, here's just a few words I want to share about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by Oxio. Have you had it with the big internet providers in Canada? The contracts, constantly shifting prices, and customer service that will keep you on hold for hours? If only there was another option that could provide you with the same quality internet, minus all that other BS. 
Oh wait, there is. Oxio, a digital internet service provider that first launched in Quebec in 2019 and has since expanded to Ontario and British Columbia. Want to know why I made the switch to Oxio? For starters, Oxio is everything the big telecom companies are not. They provide unlimited internet, no contracts, fast and local customer service, and they don't sell your data. And they pride themselves in being radically transparent with their pricing. No, seriously. For all of their internet packages, they show you the breakdown of where your money goes from network costs to how much the company actually profits. Not only that, Oxio's prices are typically lower than the average market price. So switching could mean more money in your pocket. It sure did for me. Want to give it a try too? Just visit oxio.ca and use promo code MOREMONEY to try out Oxio for free for one month. It's as simple as that. Once again, visit oxio.ca, that's O-X-I-O dot C-A, and use promo code MOREMONEY to try Oxio for free for one month. Well, welcome, Gil, to the More Money Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Um, also, it's funny. I don't think I've ever met another Gil. I have uh, an uncle named Gil. Well, his full name is Gilbert. I'm like, I think you're the only other person I've ever called Gil in my life. <laughs> There's not very many of us around. That's for sure. I've encountered a few. But amazingly, <laughs> not only is Gil an unusual name, Baumgarten is an unusual last name. And there is another Gil Baumgarten. So do you know him? Have you reached out? And he's here in Houston. So imagine that. I thought there might just be one of me in the world. So anyway. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's that's something that's for another podcast. You need to like find out who this person is, see if you're related. That's right. You know, your long lost cousin or something like that. Um, That's right. But no, I'm, I'm so excited. To ha- <laughs> yeah. um, I'm so excited to have you on the show, um, especially to talk about your book, Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. I thought it was such an interesting topic that hasn't really, or I haven't really read a book that really dives into talking about the investment industry because it does sound, it, it does kind of feel sometimes like it's smoke and mirrors or, or you know, we're, we're all told we're supposed to be investing, but then how do you choose the right you know advisor and aren't they all really just out to get us and you know make money so they can buy their own yacht and who's making money anyway and you know it just seems like a <laughs> there is a some truth to that yeah yeah there's yeah. a lot i know there's some truth to that there's some truth to that and and so for you you've been in this industry for uh over three decades almost four decades i'm sure you've seen a lot probably at all I maybe have. close to it all yeah. so yeah I have seen a lot. <laughs> um like, can you share? I, I'd love to kind of go from the beginning a little bit. Give us uh, a little bit about your story. I always kind of ask people like this, especially who've been in the industry for so long. What brought you into like the financial services investment industry? What kind of got you interested in diving in? And I'm sure once you got in, you kind of realized, oh, wow, this isn't what I expected. Yeah, a lot of that. Um, I'm really good with numbers. I've always been good at math. And so engineering was probably my calling. Uh, but I'd never had gone into engineering. I do I do recreational engineering, so that would be woodwork and mm. painting and other things. But uh, financial engineering and dealing with math is really my strong suit, and so that's why I chose a career in the investment business. Started out in the mid '80s with early '80s, really, with E.F. Hutton, an old name from the past. Ultimately, that firm became Smith Barney. I left there in 2000 and went to Payne Weber, and Payne Weber instantly got bought out by. UBS. So I spent 25 years in the brokerage business and 
had some clashes with my firms. And what I ultimately determined is that the brokerage firms fight to own the gray area and they try to define that gray area as wide as possible. And then they try to wrestle that away from the client and they compensate the broker inside of that gray area and demand allegiance for the line to be drawn in such a way that the firm wins the greater part of the gray area. And I would always find myself locking horns with my firm over who actually owned the gray area and they made it clear that I worked for them and that I didn't work for the client. Well, that was the beginning of the end for me. And so I pretty much decided I would be better off and my clients would be better off if I could define the gray area in such a way that the clients owned it all. And then I got a fee for figuring out how to draw the lines for the client. And so I switched out of the brokerage business and into the advice side of the business 12 years ago and have since raised over a billion dollars from mostly uh, high net worth and ultra high net worth clients that essentially are looking for an advocate, uh, somebody who will fight for that gray area and make sure they own as much of it as possible. So that was kind of how my journey began almost 40 years ago. Wow. Okay. Now, can you, for anyone listening, even for myself a little bit, can I get some clarity on what do you mean by the gray area? (laughs) Um, Well, in the brokerage business, um, you're allowed to take kickbacks from third parties. Uh, You can get between the client and the marketplace and carve out a spread. You can buy municipal bonds from a selling client at 97 cents on the dollar and turn around and sell that for a dollar to another client and wedge your way into a transaction and compensation that is not the purest form of participation. Purest form of participation would be to buy the muni bond at 97 cents on the dollar for the client and put it in the client's account at 97 cents on the dollar, and you just charge a fee for that. And so there's a lot of gray areas about what's legal in the brokerage side of the business versus what's legal in the advice side of the business. On the side of the business I'm on now, it's fully fiduciary. I'm not allowed to participate in that three cents of that 97 cents versus $1 example. I'm not allowed to do that. I can't make money in any way that's hidden from a client. And so just imagine all the ways that a little cubby hole could be created whether it be in the mutual fund business or stock transactions or bond transactions or money fund sweeps or whatever, where you create this little reserve and you can siphon money off into that little reserve and then carve that up in the bonus pool and the like. You can't do that on the advice fiduciary side of the business. You can clearly do that on the brokerage side of the business. So that's what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, the gray Mm -hmm. area. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the, the biggest concern from investors, whether small or big, is I feel like some, yeah, someone's making money off me. And obviously, there is always a, a, you know, amount of money you need to pay in order to get that help, that expertise that you may not have. But I think a lot yeah. of people, especially over the years, feel like they're just being taken advantage of. And I guess that's a big reason why you decide to leave, especially it was, it was interesting that you said that at your last, uh, you know, when you were in the, the brokerage kind of side of things that you, you know, who the client actually was and who you were actually supposed to be, you know, 
focused on helping was pretty interesting. It's, it, you know, yeah. typically most other industries, yeah, it's the, the client, the customer you should take care of. But in That's the financial right. services industry, it is kind of confusing. Like, wait, who's actually ta- being, am I actually being taken care of or am I being taken advantage of? Well, I actually had a conversation with my former boss when I worked for UBS. I kind of cornered him in the hallway and was complaining about this particular turn of events that I felt like my client wasn't being taken care of correctly and that I wanted it to be done in a more efficient manner. And he got this puzzled look on his face and he said, I think you're confused about who you actually work for here. And the sooner you come to realize that you work for the brokerage firm, the fewer frustrations you're going to have in your life. Essentially, he was demanding compliance to his way of thinking that my first line of allegiance was to the brokerage firm. And he made it sound like he was paying me. No, because he first had to take the money from the client. And so we just where we were in the ecosystem, our interests were not aligned, and I decided to uh, align my interests with clients. And so, uh, another turn of events with the same guy, you know, he said that uh, the firm actually owned the client relationship, and that I was just a, a servicing. Uh, part of the model. Every one of those clients had actually come from me to begin with. And I told him he was going to have the day, uh, the day would come when he would have to prove who owned those clients and, and good luck with that. So, and that day came in October of 2010 when I quit and took $300 million worth of client money from UBS. (laughs) That's always like the the moment you always kind of wish for when you leave. It's like, I'll show you, you're going to be sorry. And and I told him that I did, I did tell him he was, I was going to show him and he was going to be sorry. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's such poetic justice. That's, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I, it's such a fascinating area. And I think like one kind of conversation I have often, um, you know, with people who listen to the podcast or ask me questions is, you know, people, you know, want to find someone who will help them with their investments, grow their wealth so they can do the normal things like retire one day. This is kind of the, you know, the smart, responsible thing to do, but it is difficult to find that person who is honest and trustworthy and is actually going to take care of them, especially if you were working with someone who is selling a product. Cause at the end of the day, even if they are supposed to take care of you, well, there's so many incentives and biases are running rampant. If you just go to a bank or an investment firm, well, maybe they will point you in the direction of one product that, uh, you know, is suitable, but has high fees. And there's one that's just as suitable with lower fees. Which one do you think they're going to point you to? So it's like, what what do people do? Well, a lot of this is because we have to recognize that the world is on a continuum. And on that mm. continuum, where a client finds themselves on the continuum is going to determine what kind of advice they're entitled to. In my business mm-hmm. model, we really can't deal with cli- a new client coming on board has to have $3 million. It's just wow. the math <laughs> of doing doing yeah. business with somebody with less than $3 million just doesn't work for me. And um, we don't want clients to have a different type of experience. So a client that's trying to hire me with $100,000, I have nothing to offer them. I can't make my fee high enough. Uh, my registration document says that my fee can't be higher than one and one eighth percent. Um, that's $1,125 on $100,000. I can't spend 30 minutes with that client to engage with them and give them advice about the future. So 
um, it really takes a certain amount of minimum investment in order to engage with a fiduciary. And the business model of my competitors is not that different from my own. That person probably would be better off to pay an exorbitant commission to a broker to give them some advice to keep them from making a mistake that's way higher than the $3,000 commission they might earn on a $100,000 purchase and move on down the road. They just don't have a set of options that are perfect for them. They just have various shades of bad. And the bigger the client gets, the more important it becomes to capture all that. And that was the economic model that I ran into the problem when I'm trying to put $20 million clients on a brokerage platform. It just doesn't work well enough. So that's what I had to go create. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like if you have, if you're just starting out or you, you know, even a hundred thousand dollars to most people are like, well, that's a lot of money. Um, you know, it seems like, yeah, it's kind of the unfortunate situation. There's not a lot of options. I think that's a big reason why I kind of advocate for working with a, you know, fee only financial planner. So they don't take care of your investments, but they can give you that advice still not, it's yeah. not cheap, right? You know, it could be <clears throat> yeah. uh, quite a, but you don't a, need, a big you don't need to engage yourself. in it all the time. Yeah, you don't yeah. need to engage yeah, with exactly. them all the time. You just need periodic checkups, no. pay for that by the yep. hour, and then go out and buy some no-load mutual funds on the you know Vanguard platform. That's a that's a fine solution. Uh, but talking you in off the ledge when the market drops 11% like it has in the last nine trading days uh, might also you know be worthwhile to be paying somebody to keep you from making a much bigger mistake than simply paying too high of a fee. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the other thing I, I noticed in your book, there's a part where there was a, a client um, that wanted to work with you. And, and then you you kind of decided that they just weren't a good fit, because part of it was to do with, I think, their kind of mindset. And you said, you know what, you'd probably actually be better off with a coach. And that's kind of an interesting, uh, I think, uh, how things have changed in the past while is there's so many different roles in the financial industry, and you may not need you know, someone who, who is like yourself, who's, you know, very talented, but again, ha, uh, can only work with kind of high net worth individuals. Maybe what you actually need is maybe a team of a few different people, the only financial planner to help you set up your financial plan, and then a coach or some sort of person to help with kind of the psychological, emotional side of things. Because like, and, like you said, that is a big or, An accountability partner. I would call that an yes. accountability partner. Mm -hmm. um, and so, mm -hmm. yes, find somebody who's like-minded and maybe I'll share resources, share, you know, war stories. Uh, an investment club can also serve some of that where you get together with like-minded people and have lunch once a month and kind of talk about what you're doing. Uh, part of the problem with that is you're always going to have somebody in there that uh, mistakes the game for something other than what it is. A lot of people look for entertainment from their investments. They look for personal affirmation. They look to stoke their own, stroke their own ego. There's so many things in, that are involved in the process that are not performance seeking. It seems like it's performance seeking on the surface, but what really is going on underneath the surface is the, see, um, the seeking of personal gratification. And that's when people's uh, judgment is going to go different ways. And I think that would make it difficult to find an accountability partner unless you were very closely aligned with both of you being results-oriented. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess that, that's the other factor is really finding people who are aligned with your um, values, but also your investment philosophy. I'm sure you've, well, I'm not sure, but have you encountered uh, just I, what I've been seeing, just especially online, the conversations about investing and and just, you know, I'm, I'm a boring index investor. That's how I like to invest. And um, yep. but the conversations I've been seeing, a lot of it has been around, you know, new kind of financial assets, cryptocurrency, NFTs, all that kind of stuff. And for me, what I keep on seeing is those conversations about these new types of investments are just very fueled by emotion and like fear of missing out and all that kind of stuff. I'm curious what are your kind of thoughts on just how things are evolving in that way and how people are talking. Is this just kind of like, oh, I've seen this before. This was similar to this a de- you know, uh, decade yeah, ago or I mean, two decades ago. Uh, back in the 80s, people were selling mating emu pairs. You know, you could pick up the Houston Chronicle classifies and buy a mating emu pair for $25,000. In the book, we talk about that. And, you know, four years later, the ad said, come shoot an emu on my property for $50. So, you know, you have these trendy things. Somebody was going to corner the market on mating emu pairs. You go back to the 1600s and it was the tulip mania that swept through Europe. And uh, that's in the book as well. You have all of this meme stocks where a stock is worth $3 and a month later it's worth $300, somebody's going to get hurt. And so a lot of emotion feeds that and the desire to be part of the club and the desire to be able to brag on the tee box about, you know, you've got the market cornered on this or that. It's uh, very few good results come from something like that. You as an index investor are going to run circles around those people. The other thing That's, about it I is like so. <laughs> people people lose sight of taxes and they have mm. no concept of how the tax code is written, what kind of behavior it discourages, what kind of behavior it encourages, and they engage in behavior that the tax code is written specifically to, I don't know whether I want to use the re- word restrict or you know discourage, but people walk right into 40% tax brackets in the pursuit of another couple of dollars. They'll spend $4,000 in taxes to find a vehicle that pays them another $100. It's just... It doesn't make any mathematical sense, but people do it. Uh, And there's also stories of people creating, uh, um, having $10,000 accounts where they have 45 pages of 1099 from the thousands of transactions that they did, half of which were losses, half of which were disallowed because they had a wash sale rule applied to them. And somebody has a $5,000 tax preparation fee on a $10,000 account that actually lost money last year. And then they have to write a check to the government for $7,000 because they didn't understand the tax code. So you have issues that people just have lack of understanding about what the pursuit of higher gain really looks like from a practical standpoint, and they should not be engaging in that process, assuming they want to make money. If you don't want to make money and you're doing this for entertainment, you're playing a different game entirely from the game that I play. And I will eventually take advantage of that person one way or another. That person's money, their losses are going to end up in my accounts. Mm. I think the other thing the that system seems, is a closed ecosystem. Yeah. The yes, people who make mistakes is. lose money to the people who don't make mistakes. And I'm just mm-hmm. simply going to make fewer mistakes than everybody else. 
Mm-hmm. And you know what you're doing. You're not. Yeah. I mean, the similar. I had another guest on the show who wrote a book specifically about the um, GameStop situation. And, and it's exactly what you're kind of saying. It's, it's a kind of a closed system. And so there's a lot of people who lost a lot of money, but Wall Street still actually made quite a bit of money. But it, I think exactly uh, right. everyone just got very lost in the, the storyline. I think uh, one thing I also see quite a bit is, and, and again, I've seen this for years, and I'm sure you have too, is people always using kind of the the terminology, this time is different, this time is different. And one thing that does seem a bit new is how celebrities are now getting into the conversation. I guess they're kind of like an yep. influencer. And now that they're putting their name, oh, now, like I saw Reese Witherspoon was talking about NFTs. And like, what is going on? I don't understand what's going on. And well, so it's first just, of all, those people it, get paid. Yeah. They get yes, paid for yeah, influence. Maybe they do. And, and Ray Dalio, the famous hedge fund manager, says, there's nothing new in investing. There's just lack mm. of your understanding of history. Mm, oh, I like that. <laughs> That's a good one. That's something you should have in front of you at all times. That's a really good quote. Yeah, I think, yeah, a lot of people are just uh, getting so caught up in just the, the next big thing. Why do you feel yep. like people are always chasing the n- new thing? Is it because they don't want to take... The, you know, is it because, you know, things like index investing just seems boring or just too simple or they just feel like, no, every, there's so much newness in this world in order to to make it to the future. We need to continue looking at new things. I don't know. Um, it's all of the above. In order mm. to raise ourselves within the pecking order of our peer group, we have to be perceived as the one who's taking um, foresight and the future and turning it into personal investment policy in which there's a lot of one-upsmanship that uh, occurs and we try to get as far ahead of our peer group as possible and we're blazing new trails right into the the fire, if you will, and, and we're seemingly unaware of it in many cases, and we don't understand what it is that we are after. If we were just after best compounded return, they would do what you're doing, but they need emotional affirmation, they need excitement, and low commissions, commissions having gone to zero only feeds that even more so. Uh, the, the perception of the friction of the process uh, goes down only incentivizes people to have even more transactions uh, and make ever more mistakes and ever bigger mistakes. And the worst thing would be that they would actually have some success at it. And then they go mortgage the house and they take their second mortgage money, put it into the market, and then they lose that too. So it's just a, there's just a feeding frenzy of all kinds of conflicts of uh, mostly emotionalism that are at stake. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's, you know, one thing I've learned over the years is, and, and you talk about this in your book, it's like the two things that people always kind of forget in terms of like having a big impact in your future wealth generation is fees and taxes. People do not pay enough uh, attention to how these work. But but I, I feel like, um, you know, so so I've always been very cognizant of, of fees. But yeah, like you said, now we're in this weird world where there's so many, you know, brokerages that allow no commissions and that only because there's no barrier. And I know, a lot of these, you know, places like, you know, Robin Hood, like, oh, we're democratizing it, we're making it more accessible, but really, without 
any kind of barrier, it is so easy just to take a gamble with you know, your money, you know, having sometimes just like a little bit of a fee or some sort of structure. So you don't feel like it's so easy just to go and, and trade. I mean, I can't tell you how many times like I'm based in Canada, we have some similar apps and so many people I talk to, they're like, Oh, yeah, I'm investing, I opened up an account with this app. And I don't know what I'm really doing. But you know, it's no fees. And I'm like, that is the craziest thing to me. You know, you're playing with it your own real money. Thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like going to a, a casino and all the flashing lights and they make it easy and just throw your money onto the roulette wheel and maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't work out. But I didn't pay anything to be there. The drinks were free. Uh, that's really what we're talking about. Uh, but the odds of the house winning are are really, really good. If you're playing any game in Las Vegas, uh, you know the odds are always favoring the house. And if you buy an index fund, you are the house. You are in the place where all the money is going to end up over time, especially when you consider low taxes and low fees. Uh, but there's just very few mistakes you can actually make when you own an index fund, and all, all roads lead to where you are. And all the other mistakes that people make out on the casino floor really don't matter because if you're the house, sooner or later you're going to end up with some or all of their money. And so uh, I prefer to play the game the same way as you. Yeah. Well, so now I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, because it just seems like, you know, everyone's just talking about this. How do you break through the noise? How do you kind of ignore, you know, all of the hype? How do you just set yourself up with a really good strategy for the long term? And, and um, you know, I feel like there's something I read in your book that was, and I'm going to get this wrong. It's like, be an owner, not a renter, but it's not quite that. It's, it's basically you're trying to, you had a really good way of saying like, you've got to be in this for the long term. Um, and I think That's a lot right. of people are very short term focused. How do we Absolutely. change that mindset? Um, I think they would have to have evidence that it actually works. And, and I'll just give you some statistics that we also went over in the book. And that is, if you're a long term investor, you will make money in 81% of all circumstances. And over a lifetime, that's pretty good odds. As a matter of fact, if you went to Vegas and you found a slot machine that would pay off 81% of the time, you would never go to the bathroom. You would not want somebody <laughs> to have the opportunity to hop onto your slot machine and have the lucky pull that hit pay dirt. And so that option is available and 81% odds of success is available to anybody who will buy a broadly diversified index fund and leave it alone and, and be patient with it. But people want to do better than that. They figure that they're actually smarter than everybody else. Well, let me get, I got news for you. Not only are you not smarter than everybody else, there are professionals in the room that are way smarter than you. And if you think you can get an angle on what they know versus what you know, you have got another thing coming. And so uh, any, any angle that you figured out, somebody else has already figured it out and has already priced it accordingly. And whatever it is that you're paying for that asset today is based on the sum wisdom of everybody else who has already thought the same thing. And we always think that we're smarter than everybody else in the room. And you're not smarter than everybody else in the room. As a matter of fact, with a lot of professionals in the room, you're probably of below average intelligence when you think about it. Uh, but a lot of people
people don't want to hear that and you know they want their ego to be stroked well okay you can live in your reality and I'll live in mine now that's a, a really good word to use ego I feel like ego is the biggest thing that I have been seeing just online with the conversations um, you know about investing it's it's just people think that no they figured it out and no one else has and they they have something different or I don't know something something's different and and that is just not the case I think a lot of it maybe no. is is just the lack of experience I mean me you know now being in my mid-30s although I've been only investing you know for a decade I know so much more than I did 10 years ago so I feel like a lot of the newer investors just don't have that life experience to be like oh wait I've seen this before and I know how it goes so I feel like there's yeah. something to be said for just having that experience um but I actually wanted to uh, kind of uh, talk a little bit more about because you do have a section in your um, book about portfolio construction. So what should people take into consideration if they're either going to work with an advisor or, you know, do this on their own? What what are some of, I guess, some of the things that you believe are, are good uh, aspects to, to you know, uh, construct a portfolio for the long term? I think people need to come to grips with who they are from an emotional uh, standpoint, and then determine what it is they want out of the process. If they're seeking emotional support or ego, as we were talking about, well, then that's fine. Just you're going to have a different set of goals and objectives than somebody who is results oriented. If you're trying to build up enough net worth in order to retire, uh, you're much better off to take the slow and steady path than you are to try to hit meme stocks out of the park. It's very enticing to go out and make a hundred times your money and think about how much better your life is going to be. But the reality is, by the time you make a few mistakes along the way, how many Fs could you make in college economics and still end up with an A in the class? You can't afford to make any Fs. And if you go out swinging for the fences by trading meme stocks, you're going to end up with a couple of black eyes along the way, and a few Fs on the report card is going to kill your GPA. You need to be managing for overall GPA, even if that means getting a B on every test. If you end up with an F and all A's, you're going to be a C student by by the time the final rolls around and you just cannot afford to make mistakes like that. So knowing who you are and what you want out of the process is number one. Then number two would be to determine, I would say people should have a mental stress test that they put themselves through. So a stress test would be, okay, I got $100,000 saved. At what point and what circumstances would I cry uncle? When I'm at 50000 when I'm at 70000 and think about the stock market as a vehicle that will produce 10 8 to 10% returns over long time periods, but bouts of minus 20, an occasional bout of minus 30. So if you apply one, you know, a certain number of doses of minus 30 as your stock market return, how much of something else does it take to tamp that down to the 20% loss or the 10% loss, whatever it is that you can tolerate? So I think I would put my, my money through a mental stress test, and then I would come up with an asset allocation based on that. If I can't stand any more than a 15% loss, I can't have any more than half of my money invested in stocks. So be it. And then build an investment program based 
on that and let it run and try to keep transactional activity out of it because your ability to bob and maneuver to outwit the market is probably not going to be successful. So pick an asset allocation and a low-cost way of participation that will give the you the opportunity to have the numbers add up over long time periods and don't chase shiny things fish get caught all the time by chasing shiny things investors Mm. do too do not chase trendy (laughs) vehicles buy long-term low-cost tax preference vehicles a vanguard or s&p 500 type of an index fund is a great way to get equity participation and it's low cost and low tax you're going to have a very hard time outrunning that Mm-hmm. I'm curious, since you work with, um, you know, really high net worth individuals, is there anything different that you do? Like, oh, I, I'm just curious, like what, uh, you know, what kind of portfolios you construct for them? Are they very different than, say, you know, an index fund? What are some kind of extra, I guess, strategies or things that you do for them so they can oh, maintain that's... their wealth? That's a really good question. So we find that an index fund is a great way to participate, but if you had the components of the index fund, you would actually have a leg up. And the reason why is you can actually drive your cost to zero if you own the components of the index fund. And then if you look at the high net worth and ultra high net worth, they have a lot of charitable mentality among them, and they have... Uh, philanthropy as a big part of their accumulation strategy. Whereas if you own the individual components of the index fund, it opens up a whole nother powerful world of philanthropy, whereby an unrealized gain, a profit you've made in stocks in years past that you've never sold, never sold them, gifting those to charity, in many cases, you're only dealing with 30 cent dollars. Whereas if you sold them and gave the proceeds to a charity, you'd be dealing with, you know, regular dollars. And so owning the components of a broadly diversified strategy, whether it's index-based or whether it's not, it doesn't really matter. But owning those components is what I see individual ultra-high net worth clients leaning towards as opposed to bucketizing our money and mixing it with other people in a mutual fund or an index fund. So that's the primary defining difference between the ultra-high net worth client and the non-ultra-high net worth. The other defining thing is that people who count every every dollar by sitting in front of their computer because they have the scarcity mindset. I need to get to a million dollars and I've only got a hundred thousand. Therefore I view my situation as scarce. They're the first ones to run at the sign of trouble. Whereas somebody with a $10 million net worth is still rich, even when they have a $9 million net worth and those people are risk seeking. So the behaviors of the ultra high net worth favor even more accumulation because they are risk seeking in their behavior and low net worth investors are risk avoiding in their behavior, predominantly because they view declining prices as an affront to their pursuit of their goal net worth, where rich people only want to get richer. The $25 million guy rarely says, what do I have to do to get to $50 million? 
That's not how he lives his life. The $250,000 investor says every day, what do I have to do to get to $500,000 and anything that gets in my way is a problem. Therefore, they view declines in the market as problematic where the ultra high net worth views declines in the market as opportunity. And so that is the defining difference between low net worth and high net worth clients. And that's the reason why you hear the tune, the rich get richer. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If you don't have a lot of money, you can't take a really it's if you lose money, you're like, well, I need that money because I don't have that much money. If you're already a that's exactly right. if you lose that, a few million, right. you're fine. You've got more millions. That's exactly <laughs> right. So you have to have yeah. that margin. And that margin is the room that you allow your investments to move around in because there's so much of the world that can't be predicted. Uh, and the high net worth embrace that volatility and low net worth seeks to avoid that. And so um, it just is a very difficult uh, situation to get out of until you accumulate some money and you have a psyche shift. Mm -hmm. Well, I've certainly felt like that for myself in my 20s when I really didn't have any money. It was I was like full on scarcity mentality as I've gotten older, more wise with how to save and invest my money and build my net worth. Yeah, I've, I've seen my own mindset shift to more of an abundance because you have like you mentioned, you've got that margin. I've got that safety net. I've, you know, something happens, I'm not gonna have to move back in with mom and dad. And that makes a big yep. difference. And, and really difference influences up. all areas of your life, but especially Absolutely. your financial life. No. And I'll yeah. give I'll give you a tip yeah. as to one thing that you can do to begin to chip away at mm. the scarcity mentality. Give money to charity. Ooh, I don't care yeah. if it's $5, I don't care if it's $10, whatever the number is, start small, make it routine, make sacrificial gifts to charity and you can develop some of the same skill set that the ultra high net worth investors that put a huge priority on benevolence and on giving to charity adopt some of those same behaviors at whatever net worth you've got. And I think you're going to find that not only do blessings come your way, but your whole attitude about your money and who owns who is is going to change. Um, many people say to themselves, I have to take ownership. I have to own my money. Uh, that's not exactly the way it works. Because if you pay real close attention to that, you'll find that your money owns you. And if you let your money own you, you're going to make a string of terrible mistakes. Yes. I mean, I, I completely agree. I think that's something that I've always done since like, even like the first year I moved out of my parents, no money giving back was always something that I wanted to create as a, a routine. And it really does make you think about money differently. It's not just for you and, you know, to, to hold on to and hoard. It really should be something that you utilize to, to help yourself, but to help others. And it, like you said, that's you feel good after you're doing so good in the world. Freeing. And I always, find it does come back to you in one respect like you know just like when you say you know hello to someone nice on the street then you'll find someone else you'll, you'll just be more open and see oh the, you know there's actually a lot of nice people on the, and someone says hello to you yes. back it's just one of those things that's right yeah yeah agreed yeah 
Well, uh, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, big fan of your book, and I highly recommend everyone check it out because it's very different perspective on, um, you know, I think really seeing the inside workings of the investment industry and some things uh, you need to know from an insider who worked uh, in there. Um, foolish how investors get worked up and worked over by the system. Uh, Gil, where can people find more information about you and grab a copy of your book? My book is on Amazon. It's also on Target. Uh, it's on Audible as well. I did an author-read version of the book on Audible. So uh, it made Amazon bestseller list uh, back in best last summer. And so Foolish is the name of the book. It's a yellow cover with a ladder on the front of it. You can buy it on Amazon or buy it on Audible or whatever you want. My name of my firm is Segment Wealth Management. People can also sign up for our blog. We write a free blog about how a lot of this stuff works. There's no obligation nobody's going to call you. You can just log on to the Segment WM website and go to blog and sign up right there. And when we write a new one, it'll come into your inbox and read it if you want and don't read it if you don't want. So it's uh, another way for people to get more information. Amazing. Well, thank you so much once again for joining me. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks. And that was episode 323 with Gil Baumgarten. I will include everything about him uh, and some important links so you can follow him in the show notes for this episode, deskmorehouse.com slash 323. And FYI, in case you need a reminder, you can find every single episode I've ever uh, published uh, on my website at jessicamorehouse.com slash podcast. But if you would like to um, you know, learn more about him and his firm, uh, first you can find him at his uh, personal website, gilbaumgarten.com. So that's G-I-L-B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-E-N.com. Again, I will link that in the show notes. Uh, and of course, you can uh, check out his firm, Segment Wealth Management. That's at segmentwm.com. And you can find him on LinkedIn if if you so please. And of course, you can grab a copy of his new book, Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System on Amazon and pretty much everywhere you can uh, find a book. So uh, again, I will also link that in the show notes. And of course, I'm going to give a copy away of his book and a bunch of other books. I've got lots of things to share with you guys. So stick around. Just a few words I first want to share about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by Oxio, Empathy, Radical Transparency, Simplicity, free spirit. When you hear these words, I doubt the first thing you'd associate them with is an internet company. Oxio wants to change that. They believe in disrupting the internet provider space in Canada and putting the customer first, finally. And they're doing just that by providing local and friendly customer service, unlimited internet, no contracts, and competitive pricing to customers in Quebec, Ontario, British Columbia, and Alberta. That's why I made the switch to Oxio myself. Not only that, when you sign up using the promo code MOREMONEY, you get your first month free. Plus, like everyone at Oxio, an Eero 6 router with ridiculously fast Wi-Fi speeds and better privacy controls is included. And once you've signed up, you can even use Oxio's referral program to earn free internet. Want to ditch your old internet provider like me? Just visit oxio.ca and use promo code MORE to try out Oxio for free for one month. It's as simple as that. Once again, visit oxio.ca, that's O X I O.ca, and use promo code MORE to try Oxio for free for one month. 
Okay, so things to share. Um, let's get to the book stuff, the good stuff, the giveaway stuff. So I am giving away a copy of Foolish, but I'm also giving away eight other books. So if you go to jessicamorehouse.com slash contests, that is where you can find all of the books that I'm currently giving away. Um, and honestly, I only really, I only promote this contest, I think in my email newsletter and on the podcast. Um, so, you know, it's only special, special people like you that really get the opportunity to uh, enter to win. And so as a reference point, what books am I currently giving away? Basically any author that has been featured on the season of the show. So I'm giving away The Financial Mindset Fix by Joyce Smarter, uh, The Revolution That Wasn't. Honestly, that's probably one of my favorite books that I've read recently by Spencer Jacob. Uh, Financial Adulting by Ashley Feinstein Gersley. Get the Hell Out of Debt by Aaron Sky Kelly. My Money, My Way by Kumiko Love. Destroy Your Student Loan Debt by Anthony O'Neill. Elmer's Nine and Dine by Ryan Goldsman. And of course, Money Like You Mean It by Erica Alini. And yes, I do have more uh, authors coming on the show and I will be giving away their books as well. So, you know, it's just one of those things. Like get on my email newsletter list and you'll always be reminded to uh, enter to win one of the, the latest books. Um, oh, I just remembered, uh, besides contests, another exciting thing about the podcast, I have a double episode week. I have a brand new episode that is going to come out tomorrow. So you've got two episodes in one week. You're going to love it. Um, so make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening or just, you know, check the podcast um, for the late, you know, the episode that will air tomorrow. So very fun. I love when I do a bonus episode. That's always my favorite um, because, you know, I love doing the podcast, quite honestly. Um, so that's happening. So uh, I also mentioned, already mentioned the new artwork. That's kind of the, the big deal. But other things that I'm working on and I'm so close to being finished. New website is almost there. I just gave my web designer my kind of final uh, tweaks and edits and only oh my gosh, we're almost there. And it looks so freaking good. It looks so much better than the website that is currently up. It's not bad, the one that I have currently up. I mean, I'd say not not too bad for doing it myself. But uh, you know what? I'm not a web designer. So it's like good, but not good enough. You know what I mean? Also, I'm working with um, a specialist with uh, my budget spreadsheets, and we are making them so so good. I'm so excited to launch them. If you've already bought one of or downloaded one of my old budget or my current budget spreadsheets, don't worry. You, you know, when you do that, you sign up to my email list. So if you're still on my email list, then you will get, uh, you know, an email about the new ones and we'll get it for free. But, uh, if not, Hey, you, you can look forward to when I launch these new ones and, uh, they're good. They're so freaking good. They're better. You know, it's one of those things. One of the things that I've learned over the years as a, a small business owner is, you know, balancing, not overspending because you don't want to, you know, be one of those people that spends all of their business profits, but also like you need to spend money to make money. You need to invest in your business. And sometimes that means outsourcing work, hiring people that are really good at things that you were not good at. And so that is what I'm doing a ton of this year, hiring a bunch of experts that, that are, you know, really good with Excel or Google Sheets or web designing, or I mean, I hired a stylist to pick out good clothes for my photo shoot because I have no sense of style zero. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. So far, it's it's worked out pretty good. So lots of exciting things coming down the pipe or pike, whatever version of that idiom you want to, you know, you like, there's both for you. Also, I want to remind you that uh, I've got a YouTube channel, y'all. I feel like people don't realize all the different things that I do. And, and maybe it's because I do too much. Um, but I obviously have this podcast, which I love, but I also have a YouTube channel. And I feel like lots of people who follow me on the YouTube have no idea I have a podcast. And a lot of people that follow me on the podcast have no idea I have a YouTube channel. But I do. If you go to, you know, jessicamorehouse.com slash YouTube, or just Google my name, Jessica Morehouse into YouTube, you will find me. And I am finally releasing new videos because I finally have like a proper work 
workspace in my home. I mean, it's actually temporary. I'm, I'm going to set up a proper space in my basement. That's going to be like my little YouTube slash podcast recording room. So excited. Like my husband's so excited. He's going to get me like some sound treatment, some actual sound treatment. So and I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to get like one of those, you know, those arms that you, you see. I always see like these like YouTubers and podcasters that have them that are connected to their desks. That sounds fancy. Maybe I should even get some new headphones. I literally still use just those free white Apple ones I got, you know, you always get with your phone or whatever. Yeah, I still use those. And I still see all these podcasters with these like really fancy ones. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should upgrade. I am a professional podcaster. This is what I do for a living. But sometimes it's like, eh, these are fine though. You know, I'm still cheap. Maybe that's it. I'm just cheap. Maybe, maybe that's probably what it is. I think that's kind of it. That's really all I've got. But I think that's quite a bit, isn't it? Um, So thank you so, so, so much for listening. And a big shout out to my wonderful podcast editor, Matt Rideout. And I will see you back here tomorrow because I've got that bonus episode that I mentioned earlier. So have a good rest of your day. I'm going to see you back here tomorrow and uh, then we'll chat and then and then you'll see what tomorrow's episode is all about. All right. See you then. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.